continuing uh, the series in Mark. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today. We come to you today and we praise you that you are the mighty king who has come with power and authority to rule, to reign, and to deliver. Lord, we praise you that the forces of darkness and the kingdom of darkness has no power over those who belong to you. That when we in our darkness are consumed by the satanic kingdom that oppresses us, you and your goodness have come to us in that darkness and drawn us out into light. And Lord, I pray today as we worship you through song and through scripture, Lord, I pray that you would just Help us to hear your word. Help us to see your goodness and help us to internalize the beauty of the reality that your kingdom has come. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. In order for us to rightly understand this passage, because this is a very strange passage, isn't it? It's a very bizarre passage. In order for us to rightly understand what's being communicated here by Mark about Jesus, we need to find this passage's place in the bigger whole of the book of Mark. Because it's here in the bigger picture of what Mark seeks to communicate that we see the beauty and the glory of the gospel in this passage. 
So we need to go back to the beginning of the book of Mark and look at what I like to call Jesus' thesis statement. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. This is Mark's intention in his gospel, is to look all the way back into the Old Testament and show the climax of the slow build from Genesis all the way up to the fulfillment of what Israel looked forward to and hoped for, the arrival of God's kingdom where the Lord would come down and he would be their God and they would be his people. And the Lord would cast out, put to shame and judge the kingdoms of darkness that surrounded Israel. And Mark's intention is to show that this has come to pass and it is brought to pass in the person and work of Jesus. And this gospel is much different from the other three Gospels. Whereas the other three seek to show who Jesus is through his teaching and his interactions with others, Mark seeks to show Jesus' actions and his works as a sign pointing to him as the one who was to come. Mark seeks through the actions of Jesus to reveal that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who Israel had hoped for. He seeks to show that Jesus is the anticipated king who would sit on the throne of David forever and who would bring the kingdom of God with power and glory. And when we come to our passage, we find it in the midst of four stories that seek precisely to show that Jesus is the king to come. In the first story, starting in chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, we see Jesus and his disciples enter into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And as they're crossing, a storm comes upon the sea. And it begins to consume the boat. And his disciples are helpless. They are at the mercy of the storm. These disciples cannot save themselves and they face certain and utter death. But Jesus awakening by a mere word commands the winds and waves and they cease to rage. The chaos stops. And by a mere word, Jesus shows his power, his authority, and his dominion over creation and nature. Fast forwarding to chapter 5, verses 25 through 34, Jesus encounters a young woman who has an uncurable medical condition. She had been bleeding for 12 years and she had spent all of her money and all of her resources on doctors to try to stop her medical condition, to stop her sickness, but to no avail. And she is rendered helpless to heal Herself. Furthermore, in her continual bleeding, according to the law, she was ceremonially unclean. And anything that she touched was unclean. She would have been seen as an abomination, an outcast amongst the people of Israel. Yet when she comes to Jesus and touches the hem of his robe, Jesus does not become unclean. But in touching the hem of his robe, the woman 
is healed, and thus she is made clean. And in this action, Jesus shows his power, his authority, and his dominion over sickness. Looking back to chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, and verses 35 through 43, a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus comes to Jesus, and his daughter is on her deathbed. And the man begs Jesus, heal my daughter. Yet while Jesus is far off, the little girl dies. This little girl cannot resurrect herself. This family's cries cannot raise this child from the dead. This family is helpless to overcome death. Yet Jesus has the power, the dominion, and the authority over death, which sin has brought into the world. And with a word, Jesus overcomes death and the girl is resurrected to new life. And in the midst of these three episodes, we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, the story of the demon-possessed man and Jesus coming to the demon-possessed man. And in these verses, Jesus' kingship shines forth as the long-awaited king of Israel reveals his power and the power of his kingdom over the kingdom of Satan and Jesus' dominion over spiritual darkness in the demon-possessed man reveals the beauty of the gospel, which is our hope and salvation. Now, what we need to realize as we address this text is demon possession is not an isolated incident to these verses. Rather, Mark paints demon possession as a primary aspect of Jesus' ministry. It's so primary, it's so important that Mark mentions Jesus' interaction with demons and unclean spirits no less than 18 times outside of this passage. And in many of these instances, he's not talking about Jesus just casting out one demon, but many demons in each mention of exorcism. And what we see is that this plethora of mentions that Jesus casts out demons, it's not coincidental. Rather, Mark mentions it with abundance because his intention is to reveal Jesus' power and dominion over the kingdom of darkness. And this reveals Jesus to be the promised one who Israel anticipated would crush the serpent's head, who would make his enemies his footstool, who would sit on the throne of David forever and would restore the kingdom to Israel. Yet in all of the mentions, not only in the book of Mark, but also throughout all the Gospels, these 20 verses are hands down the most detailed account of an exorcism in all the Gospels. What we see is that Jesus and his disciples come to the other side of the sea following the storm. And upon arrival, a demon-possessed man comes rushing down the hill at Jesus and his disciples. He comes aggressively towards them. Now, this is not just some random demon-possessed man, but this man would have been notorious in his possession amongst the people of the region. Because this man was consumed by utter madness. It says that day and night, people could hear him crying in the tombs. Day and night, his violent behavior was on display as he mutilated his flesh with stones. In Luke's account, it says that as he's doing these things, he's completely 
naked and that the townspeople came to try to contain this man and they bound him with chains and shackles, yet to no avail. The demon-possessed man expresses a supernatural power that allowed him to literally rip the chains to shreds and the people of this region were absolutely powerless to stop him. Matthew's account says that the man is so dangerous that no one could pass by on the road that he haunted. Furthermore, this man is not just possessed by one demon, but when Jesus asked, what's your name? The demon replies, legion, for we are many. Now, this is not just a name that these many demons have, but rather the term legion was referring in that culture at that time to a Roman legion, which was a military regiment of 6,000 soldiers. And what's being communicated here in light of Jesus' kingship is this isn't just a group of demons hanging out in some random guy But this is literally the army of Satan consuming this man's soul. A legion of the army of darkness within this man. And because of these factors, this man was an absolute terror to all who encountered him. Yet, when he encounters Jesus, this man's terror subsides and he is stopped dead in his tracks This man comes to Jesus, and rather than expressing the horror that he was so accustomed to pouring out on those who crossed his path, the man falls prostrate before Jesus. Literally, it says he fell down in a state of worship, and he begins to beg Jesus not to bestow judgment against them. And the reason why the demon comes and falls down in worship and begins begging for mercy from Jesus is because these demons, this legion, realizes that Jesus is no mere man or prophet. But this Jesus, he is the Lord's holy one. This Jesus is the king who was to come. This Jesus, by the demon's own profession, is the son of the most high God. And in this moment, Jesus exercises his kingly authority over the legion and he casts them out of the man into a herd of pigs, which results in the madness leaving the mind of the man and the madness entering into the pigs and it drives the pigs to a watery tomb. And as a result of the kingdom of God and its king coming to this Man, the demon-possessed man is found seated at the feet of Jesus, no longer in the chaos of possession, but rather this man is found in his right mind and at peace, longing to follow his king wherever he may go. So here's the question. Here's the million-dollar question. What does this passage have to do with us today? Like, how do we relate to this passage? And realistically, is this passage even relevant to us? I mean, this passage reflects a horror movie, like something you would see in The Exorcist, more than it reflects something that we would encounter on a daily basis in real life. Because let's be real, when was the last time that you encountered someone 
who had literally lost their mind and their soul to the kingdom of darkness? At first thought, the answer is absolutely never. We've never encountered something like this. But the reality is, when we take a step back and we look at the world around us, we see this every day in every single unbeliever we encounter. And the truth is, this was you and me. This was you and me before the king had come to cast the kingdom of darkness out of us. And we see this when we compare Mark's description of the demon-possessed man with us in our unregenerate state. Now, before I go further, I have a disclaimer. What I am not saying, I am not saying that all unbelievers are demon-possessed. Not at all. I'm not saying that all unbelievers have the erratic behavior of the demon-possessed man. What I'm proposing is that the characteristics reflected of the demon-possessed man in the story are reflective of you and I in our unbelief. And in the same fashion as Christ the king had come to the demon-possessed man when Jesus the king has come to us, the kingdom of Satan which rules over us is cast out and overthrown. So what are the characteristics of the demon-possessed man that image us in our unbelief? There are so many here if you go through and you parallel the behavior, the circumstances, the situation the story of the demon-possessed man. But I've highlighted four characteristics that I believe truly bring to light our condition in unbelief and the beauty and the glory of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. The first characteristic is that Jesus comes to the demon-possessed man in the midst of his darkness. You say, where is this in the passage? If we go back to Mark chapter 4, verse 35, the beginning of these four stories that highlight the power, authority, and dominion of Jesus, it says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. As Jesus and his disciples begin their journey to the other side where Jesus would ultimately meet the demon-possessed man, it is evening. The sun is setting and going down. And they have a 13-mile journey by boat across the sea. And in the midst of this journey, a storm comes that seeks to destroy the boat. No doubt when Jesus reached the other side, it was nightfall. And when Jesus came to this man, this man was wandering about in the darkness. So it is with us. When the king has come to us, he finds us also wandering in the darkness. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord walk as children of the light. Prior to Christ, we were not only in the darkness, but the passage says we were darkness. Just like the demon-possessed man. Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Prior to Christ, we were in the domain, the realm of darkness. Yet, when Jesus came to us, we were transferred from this domain, 
this kingdom, this realm of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. When we look at the idea of being in darkness, we see that darkness has an effect on the mind and the body, the volition of the unbeliever, just as darkness consuming the demon-possessed man had an effect on him. Romans 1.21, Ephesians 4.18 present the picture that darkness affects the hearts and minds of unbelievers so that everything they do and everything that they think is done in complete and utter darkness. Next, we see the demon-possessed man found his dwelling amongst the dead. Literally, he found his place living amongst the tombs. And in his condition amongst the tombs, and in his condition just like us, in unbelief, in an unregenerate state, there is no doubt that if we were to look to Paul, to interpret this passage, we would see that not only was this man amongst the tombs, but he was one of their own. He himself was dead, just like the corpses who he found his dwelling amongst. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in like manner, in our unbelief, we dwell too amongst the spiritually dead. And we ourselves are amongst their ranks because we too are actually spiritually dead along with them just as the demon-possessed man found his dwelling amongst the dead and amongst their ranks so we too in our unbelief found our dwelling and our place amongst the ranks of the spiritually dead finally the demon-possessed man was under the rule and control of the legion as i stated before the legion was referring to many demons in a military regiment or troop of the kingdom of Satan. Thus, the demon-possessed man himself was under the rule and dominion of the kingdom of Satan. And in like manner, we too in our unbelief were under the rule and dominion of the kingdom of Satan. Continuing in Ephesians 2, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul here takes this concept of spiritual death, and he defines it in two united ways. First, he says that we walked according to the course of this world. Literally, we were living our lives according to the course of the kingdom of Satan, the world that he is the prince of the power of the air rules over. And we follow this prince and his dominion over this kingdom. And we are dominated in our affections towards the kingdom of darkness. We see this in the statement that says, Referring to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work over the sons of disobedience. Now, this is often understood as Satan being the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. The problem with this interpretation is that it's grammatically difficult and improbable. Rather, an alternative and better reading would state that Satan isn't the spirit in unbelievers, but that Satan is actually ruling over the spirit that is in an unbeliever. 
Distinguished New Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, Dan Wallace, gives a wonderful and beautiful translation of this verse. He says, You formerly walked according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit, which now works in the sons of disobedience. And this translation renders the unbeliever under the rule of Satan and his worldly kingdom of darkness, just as the demon-possessed man is under the rule of the military legion of Satan. Ultimately, this plays itself out in our actions and our minds, just as the demon-possessed man under the satanic dominion cries and self-mutilates day and night, expressing this dominion in his mind and in his body. So we live out the rule of Satan and his kingdom in our minds and our bodies through our fleshly desires. And furthermore, because of our fallen nature within us, our natural inclinations and desires align with the rule and the reign of this kingdom which rules over us. However, looking at these three points of how we relate to the demon-possessed man in this story, the most astounding aspect of the correlation between us and the demon-possessed man is not the similarities in our darkness, our deadness, or our bondage to the kingdom of Satan. Rather, the most amazing similarity between the demon-possessed man and us is when we both came face to face with the king. Because when we, just like the demon-possessed man, come face to face with the king, King Jesus drives out the dominion of darkness and brings us into his kingdom. When Jesus finds this demon-possessed man, he finds him walking in darkness, dwelling in death under the rule and dominion of the kingdom of Satan, and every single aspect of his mind and his body were subject to this condition, yet the great king does not leave him to himself. He does not leave him in the chaos of darkness, but he draws him out of the darkness to himself. He brings him out of the tombs to the giver of life. He casts out the rule and dominion that has bound him, and he transforms this man's whole entire being from a picture of absolute horror to, new, to a new creation with a new citizenship. However, this story is not the final picture. This story is merely a foreshadowing of the true victory that Christ the King would accomplish over the kingdom of darkness. The true victory that our King Jesus, the one who was to come, would accomplish at the cross because it's here at the cross where Jesus would wage the climactic battle against sin, death, and the kingdom of darkness. And he would do so by bearing our sins in his body. He would do so by dying the death that we deserve. He would do so by drinking the cup of judgment and wrath that was stored up for all of us. And not just this, but after all the these things, he dealt the death blow that would crush the serpent's head and render the kingdom of darkness powerless. The death blow was that he rose from the dead on the third day. It is in this battle waged at the cross and the victory accomplished in the resurrection that we, like the demon-possessed man, we too have been drawn out of the darkness. It is in this death and this resurrection that we too have been brought out from death to life. 
It is in this death and this resurrection that have brought us out from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. And it is by this death and resurrection that we now sit in the newness of life and worship of our great King, Jesus, who has redeemed us. So as we close today, and we look at the world around us, we live in a world that is consumed with darkness. The more we watch the news, the more we look at the culture, it seems as though the kingdom of Satan gains more and more power and more prominence. But the beauty of the gospel is this. As we look at this darkness around us, we can remember that we too at one time were a part of this kingdom. But this kingdom, which seems to grow in power and prominence, 2,000 years ago, was defeated in death and resurrection. And we can know that though little battles still wage, the war has been won and we have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life by the death and resurrection of the king who has risen and is seated at the right hand of the father awaiting to return. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today and we praise you for your amazing and your wonderful grace and your power which you have exercised over the kingdom of darkness, which you have exercised over death, which you have exercised over sin, and that by your death and resurrection, you have brought us out of these things, and we now have a new citizenship, and that is a citizenship in your kingdom. We praise you, Lord, for this, for doing what we could not do, for accomplishing which we, what we did not have the power to accomplish, and we praise you, we love you, and we exalt you our great and mighty King. Amen.